must speak the truth about terror. Let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories, malicious lies that attempt to shift the blame away from the terrorists themselves. What happens? I tell you what happens. Blam! I have a window that looks directly at the World Trade Center, and I saw... No collusion! Shit's getting way too complicated for me. Welcome to The Antidote. This is Greg McCann. This is Jeremy Rothko Show. All right, we're back for part two of our series of getting into the uh, getting into the uh, Ukraine, Russia, Ukraine situation. And uh, I get in this part, we're going to um, talk about some of the media propaganda we've seen from uh, both aspects of the milieu that we may have at one point been associated or affiliated with for better or for worse combined also with the um the lot of the i would say deceptive kind of a right-wing republican uh talking points that are coming out about the um the what's going on with russia and ukraine maybe we'll bring in some of the uh quote-unquote left uh element of this as well but uh, i'd like to focus on that then also uh jeremy i know you want to bring in some um we want to start getting into aspects of uh digging into the Ukraine aspects as it relates to um, some very interesting scenarios that we've talked about before. We're going to elaborate on further regarding um, our own election in 2004 and, and connecting that back to Ukraine and things that um, and bridging a gap together between um, what we're seeing with this media propaganda, taking that back to our own um, the events of our own election where we uh, saw the as we're going to point out contrary to what like the the same people who aided and embedded and made this moment with uh, the previous administration possible in terms of like all of the Russian and otherwise um, uh, complicity and uh, games going on with that in terms of, like all the foreign influence now wringing their hands about what I believe are false reasons for why this uh, invasion took place. Um, we're going to connect that back to um, the the Trump years, and then also going back further than that into the bringing together Ukraine with um, the the Bush years in the particularly the 2004 election. So uh, I think that's where we're going to go with this. And we'll just, uh, as we're going to be doing several parts here, we'll just go where the conversation takes us, I guess. But I think that's going to be our focus on this particular installment. That sounds uh, very good. And uh, as we as we move into the uh, media analysis and from quote unquote both sides, uh, I maybe we can briefly just delve into this very important and interesting background of of Putin and Henry Kissinger. And I didn't mention in our last episode that when when I referred to John Mearsheimer as maybe having put forth the clearest eyed criticism of what I would assert is the the neocon, the paleo neocon push to to uh, the NATO maximalist and American imperial maximalist push in relationship to uh, Russia, specifically in terms of what Mearsheimer describes as leading Ukraine down the primrose path, where they're going to get wrecked. I think is the word that he used by by Russia in terms of playing this footsie game around whether Ukraine is going to get NATO security assurances ever while also sort of pushing pushing up in there in relationship to the 
uh, neocon uh, aggression in relationship to the American imperial stance towards Russia in the post-Soviet uh, world. And what's interesting about it is in the beginning of Mearsheimer's talk at the time, uh, I believe it's 2015, could have been 2014, I think it's 20, it may could have been 2014, uh, but uh, we'll, we'll link to a, a video of his talk on the matter. He says, I'm virtually alone in terms of the American foreign policy intellectual establishment in terms of this viewpoint. And then he names two other people. He names Stephen Cohen, who has been the crucial go-to for some of the people we may talk about, actually, people like uh, Aaron Maté, uh, Max Blumenthal, even Jimmy Dore, I think, has referred to Stephen Cohen a lot, who's a, a Russia scholar, who's also the husband, I believe, of the uh, the head of the Nation magazine. Uh, is, isn't he, Greg? I think so. Oh, yes. The now deceased uh, Stephen Cohen is the husband uh, or was the oh, husband right. of uh, Katrina Vandenhoofel. Yes. Right. I forgot that he, he had died. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for for clarifying that. And yes, Katrina Vandenhoofel. And then the other person he mentions is Henry Kissinger. And there's a deeper background here that we hopefully we can get into as this series progresses, which is actually referring to the maybe the original congressional hearing. I think it's a Senate hearing, actually, that talks about strat strategies for NATO in, in the post-Cold War era. And the who's who, obviously, of the foreign po American foreign policy establishment are there. And really, Kissinger seems to be featured. And uh, we'd like to do a dive into Kissinger's statement then and then Kissinger's later statements. But what's so interesting is in the background of this is this very deep relationship with Putin. And we pointed it out before that, that you know, that there was something very clear going on when this episode in the White House, when early on, when Trump is meeting with the Russians, I believe he excludes the entirety of the American press, only allows Russian press uh, in there. I think it's in the Oval Office. And then the 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 American who is there is uh, Henry Kissinger. And used you used for a show that we did about who was sort of in control of the Trump operation. You used a picture of Henry Kissinger and Trump in those uh, the standard seats that they use uh, when there is a uh, a conversation on display in the White House. And then on top of that, you put a a banner for the CNI, the uh, Center for the National Interests, formerly the Nixon Center. And we've discussed that photo and that image before of like the spectacle, and it's very symbolic. I mean, of like Kissinger being in there with that uh, Trump and the um, ambassador, I believe. Uh, oh, um, names escaping me. Uh, Kislyak, Sergey Kislyak, and um, the. I mean, the fact like that that should have been like there should have been details and demanded like answers. <laughs> what was going on in there? So that was at a very important time. This was just before Trump made that. Uh, trip to the Middle East where he went to Saudi Arabia and touched the globe with all those other people and then um, went to Israel. And uh, so this was an important time. And this was right as the right about the time the story, I believe, came out where it was um, the uh, where Russia had or these where this 
sensitive information about Israel and ISIS was leaked to the Russians and all of that big uh, media controversy stuff. So that was a very that was a very important uh, period where like Henry Kissinger's right there in the Oval Office with uh, Trump and the uh, ambassador. Uh, Kislyak. So I, I keep going back to that because, uh, you know, much like the Breitbart conceived in Israel alone, but I feel like this is very symbolic in an important way. Yes. And, and we then might notice why these, this sort of standard group of these Trump, Russia, 11, nine, uh, deceivers who are there in standard, you know, what we've come to see is like the standard Putin strategic angle of the whataboutism. And you, you'll see this all over the place. Like at some point we'll go into the Oliver Stone interview with Putin that I referred to in our last episode where Stone asks Putin very directly about, they're talking about Afghanistan and the, and the post 9-11 quote unquote war on terror. And, and Oliver Stone points out that you guys, the Russians, the then priorly Soviets, had this deep, you know, encounter with what became Al-Qaeda. And you must have some strong intelligence in relationship to Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. And wh why, why, uh, why is it that we don't know what, you know, why... Why is it so, why was it so hard to find out that they were, uh, where they were, that they were so sparsely populated as Al Qaeda? You remember that whole thing that eventually came to the surface when, uh, when, um, uh, the, uh, CIA director under, uh, Obama Panetta released the case that there was just a handful of Al Qaeda in Afghanistan at some point early on in the Obama administration. So I think Stone was referring to, to, to that. And Putin does this really sort of obvious sidestep whataboutism, basically pointing out that the U.S. Uh, helped manufacture Al-Qaeda with the background of the Mujahideen and relationship to the Soviets. And we already ha we, we had to encounter them and all that. And that's exactly the question that Oliver Stone actually asked Putin was be was like, well, I'm not saying you invented or helped create uh, Al Qaeda. I'm saying that you must have intelligence on them. So what happened there? And it was so that's a perfect example of the of what this whole crew is doing in relationship to the invasion of Ukraine is they're basically, and, and obviously there's like, like we pointed out before in terms of Russian state media and people like Abby Martin, Abby Martin did a lot of very deep, truthful American dissident, uh, factual journalism that was important when she had her show on, on RT. And likewise, these, these people such as like Aaron Maté or someone like Caitlin Johnstone are pointing out things that are, are obviously factual and they're importantly truthful too, in terms of there's obviously a, uh, a massive uh, blind spot and moral hypocrisy in relationship to the uh, Western approach to the invasion of Ukraine. And, the, and there is really correctly a, an, analysis, a, a, an analysis of the pretty blatant ethnocentrism, the Eurocentrism, really almost like this sort of latent racism that you're seeing in certain kinds of liberal uh, talking heads, talking about, you know, uh, people who are uh, basically the, the line is looking to be like, these are 
middle class, you know, white Europeans with blue eyes. So it's really hitting me now, you know, these are not those, you know, those brown, brown people, the sort of sort of semi-civilized or non-civilized people in the Middle East who uh, we always hear about the ravages of war hitting and stuff like that. And that's true that there is that. And that is, you know, although the sort of like the reactionary right will try to dismiss that there, there is a racist component to the, to the uh, liberal um, sort of fervor in relationship to standing with the Ukrainians and that they see them as middle-class white people like themselves. That's true. That doesn't mean then that it's being used in good faith, that analysis or this other analysis of, well, what about Yemen or what about Syria or what about Libya or what about Iraq? That's all. Or even what about Palestine? Well, definitely that. Yes. And as the most constant over the decades and the decades and the decades and the ongoing involvement of the U.S. in that. And so all of those takes are important and they're legitimate, but the way that they're being used is, is straight out of the Putin playbook. <laughs> I'm sorry to say, but it is. And we've noticed the way that this is, this is how Putin himself, we, we once said that there's these sort of two pillars of, of Putin blatant uh, propaganda. One is what we pointed out directly with someone like Tulsi Gabbard throughout the Trump years, all the way in through the impeachment. Uh, the threat is if if you try to hold someone to account or if you do an impeachment or in this case, if you there's any kind of response against the Russian invasion, then you're uh, you're threatening civil war in the case of American accountability uh, or impeachment uh, or you're threatening World War Three. So that's one approach that sort of seems straight out of the of the of the Putin playbook, really. And, and really, you see that all throughout these Russian propaganda networks. Uh, so that's. Uh, that's one piece of it. And then the other pillar of it is the immediate whataboutism, 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 uh, rather than actually answering the question, for example, the direct question that Oliver Stone asked to Putin. And then I'll point out Oliver Stone let him slip right out of it, didn't follow up, be like, no, uh, President Putin, I, I actually, I understand that you didn't, you didn't actually manufacture. I wasn't saying that you helped create the Mujahideen that became Al-Qaeda, I was saying you had an encounter with them and you must have had intelligence. And so what's going on and all of that kind of thing. Now, later on, they, they deal, they dabble in that area and stuff like that. And there's some interesting stuff there that maybe um, we'll get to. But I just wanted to, to uh, point, uh, point uh, that out. And, uh, and, and I'll, so then my, my final point on that is that what you will not hear is these people pointing out this really deep and intriguing relationship between Kissinger and Putin or or something like the uh, what you won't see the, the the sort of maga or soft maga or alt right pointing out is that Putin is also a world economic forum young leader or or leader just like <laughs> someone like Tulsi Gabbard and Dan Crenshaw were too that's a good point. I mean, yeah, you don't hear about, uh, yeah, you don't hear about Putin. And it's interesting. You even talked about, you even talked to me when we were talking off the record on the phone about like the, um, uh, off the record talking about like, um, 
you have Putin on one hand in the World Economic Forum. Then on the other hand, you have uh, Justin Trudeau and all the stuff going on in Canada. So it's like, you know, it seems that like at some level or another, like um, almost that there's like a game of some sort or type being played at some level or another. But whatever's going on with like this bigger World Economic Forum, Great Reset agenda and all this, whatever is or isn't going on with that. I mean, it's um, it seems to me that we talked about like what we believe is like a level of continuity at some level or another with that. Uh, elements of uh, Trump and the the unleashing what maybe is like COVID uh, and then the response to it and all this. So, I mean, there's a, but that whole factor of like Putin doesn't get pointed out or in some circles, Putin uh, gets praised for his speech at the World Economic Forum where he's exposing them, quote unquote. So it's like, I mean, it's, a, it's, it's pretty messy. Yeah. And, and, ex- and Alex Jones exactly last weekend was playing this clip that surfaced from this Klaus Schwab and I believe David Gergen conversation where Klaus Schwab is talking specifically about their insertions, their penetrations of these governments around the world with their people. And he mentions, he mentions, uh, Justin Trudeau, by the way, the, I'd say the, the credibly analyzed, uh, son of Fidel Castro. I think it's it actually the the forensics are there. So that's an interesting thing, but what what's crucial here is that it's he's identifying Justin Trudeau uh you know in a little bit earlier on uh, as a penetration agent of the World Economic Forum, but he also then mentions Vladimir Putin and Alex doesn't even touch on that. And remember, this is before the this is a few days before the invasion happened. And uh, and he obviously was uncomfortable in avoiding the the Putin World Economic Forum Klaus Schwab uh, relationship there uh, identified as uh, such. So, Greg, Greg, can I just do a little bit of this reading of this actual the forensics of the background between Kissinger and Putin and when they were alleged to have first met and what they said to each other? Yeah, let's yeah, let's do it. Okay, there's there's different reporting on this. There's a uh, there's a political article from twenty from December twenty fourth, twenty sixteen, by Nahal Tusi and Isaac Arnsdorf, titled "Kissinger, a longtime Putin confidant, sidles up to Trump. America's preeminent ex diplomat gets back in the mix. Could he help broker a deal with Russia?" Okay, so that's that's one thing that was being touched on during the. Uh, during the in-between period, right? The transition between Obama and then, and then Trump in 2016. And, uh, but the, this other interesting, it's called the Cicero Foundation Commentary from January of 2016, number 1601, The Strange Putin-Kissinger Friendship by Marcel H. Van Herpen, director of the Cicero Foundation, actually has a a little bit more a deeper and more um factually explicit uh telling of the background uh, of of Putin and Kissinger. All right, t- quote, The Strange Putin Kissinger Friendship by Marcel H. Van Herpen. A Kissinger Putin friendship, the reader will rub his eyes. It is difficult to imagine a kind of secret understanding between Nixon's Secretary of State and the leader of the Kremlin. Unquote. Not for us. It's not. Okay. Uh, a world of difference seems to exist between America's leading geopolitical thinker and the former KGB agent who rules Russia. However, when one takes a closer view of their relationship, some interesting facts emerge, not only personal, but also political and possibly even financial. 
Let us first take a closer look at their personal relationship. In First Person, a book with interviews published immediately after Putin's appointment to acting president on December 31, 1999, Putin told about the strange kind of mutual understanding he developed with Kissinger in the beginning of the 1990s. When Kissinger came to St. Petersburg to participate in the Kissinger Subchuk Commission, set up to attract foreign investment. Quote, once I met him at the airport, told Putin, we got into the car and went in, went to the residence. On the way, he asked me where I was from and what I was doing. He was an inquisitive old fellow, unquote. And by the way, um, this uh, Kissinger was there for investment opportunities in Russia. This would have coincided with, I believe, the um, ongoing uh, work Kissinger, so Kissinger and Associates was doing in terms of a similar vein in China. So. Yeah. And, and I'll just point out that the, the, this, this is sort of portrayed a little bit like sort of this was just some chance encounter that Putin somehow was just the one because of his position at the time who was then going to pick up Kissinger from the airport and then they learn about each other and they turn out that they're both from intelligence and you'll find you'll see that that's sort of the way that the thing evolves. Another way of uh, considering this is the, is in terms of what we've begun to, you know, really dive into in terms of these questions, these deeper mole questions, these deeper double agent questions around people, such high level people in the American intelligence and security establishment, such as Henry Kissinger and James Jesus Angleton and these questions of 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 mole molehood moleship or penetration as a as a Klaus Schwab would talk about it too and uh and so this is then this could also be considered oh this is just sort of part of a much long term uh intelligence relationship uh of of people of a similar fold or maybe the same fold potentially uh, even and that would also really be coherent in relationship to these actual facts that we're we're reading about here. Um, and I just wanted to point out too that that one of the things that that it, uh, the reason why it's so startling that these all these people doing the what aboutisms what aboutisms, especially in the left alternative media, not bringing up this Kissinger Putin relationship is because Kissinger is seen as the archetypal American war criminal over the many, many decades. And so it doesn't make any sense for them to uh, not uh, drill down onto this uh, Putin Kissinger relationship. Yeah, he's the archetypal war criminal and then also like the archetypal globalist for the you know, other, other side of things. I mean, it's pretty, pretty amazing. That's true, Greg. Yeah, and that's a good point, Greg, because. The 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 Alex Jones is not talking about the Kissinger Putin relationship to the New World Order. Uh, all of that is is as glaring, maybe even more glaring, especially since they're the ones who really sidled up to the Trump, uh, the Trump operation, which was so obviously Putin Kissinger heavy. The 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 controlled sort of alt left. They always publicly said they were against Trump uh, pretty much, but that he was just a continuity of the American empire or something like that. So it is even more damning the, yeah. this uh, leaving out this Putin Kissinger connection by the Alex Jones types, actually. 
Yeah, and it was then InfoWars employee, Washington correspondent Jerome Corsi, who did this uh, live stream back when he was still extolling the virtues of QAnon about, uh, you know, Kissinger and how, and he even knew it was going to cause like an issue with some of his uh, some of his audience. Oh, you know, you might call him a a war criminal or whatever, but you know, Kissinger and Trump basically worked to with uh, Putin to reshape the Middle East and all this. So, I mean, there was rationalization going on from the chief, like reporter at InfoWars at the time too. So I mean, it's like, it is pretty, it's pretty amazing. And I don't have the soundbite, but I seem to recall Alex Jones having a quip one time about how Kissinger's got nothing on some of these other globalists. So I think, you know, there's, there's things there, but for 25 years, he's been one of the primary arch villains and like in this, uh, in this American, like, patriotic, libertarian, paleoconservative, anti-war, um, anti-neocon, um, uh, entire sphere of uh, influence. So it's pretty telling that he's not featured in the narratives in terms of like being right there with, uh, with, with Trump and all that. I believe on today's uh, Alex Jones live stream, there was an image of Kissinger along with like David Rockefeller and other arch globalists, oh. but it's the same narrative. Like he's just in bed with the, the globalists that are just trying to destroy MAGA and America and all this. And so, well that, you know, what's very interesting, Greg, about that too, is that, that Kissinger actually would be probably one of the crucial figures to point out in terms of if they, if the, if someone were coming at this from a, a, a morally uh, coherent, and critique of this this moment of Ukraine and the American Western context and relationship to it, it was, should have been the war in Vietnam and Kissinger's role in that because that was the that was really was one of the biggest examples of something that could be seen similar to this moment of the of a of a proxy war than the Cold War now sort of what could be seen or would be could be talked about as a new Cold War in relationship to uh, the U.S. versus Russia in relationship to this uh, Ukrainian proxy war and dirty war going back a while and now the, this Russian invasion that's on top of this, all of that. The, the Vietnam and Kissinger's role in all of that Southeast Asia escalation, uh, it would be a crucial one to point out. The other thing is that Kissinger also was at the core of the of the the first 9-11, the Chilean coup. And, and what's interesting about that is that the, the, the shutdown of the, of the uh, industrial uh, supply lines, i.e. trucker, trucker convoys, was a key piece of, of that operation, actually. And so then when you then factor in the sort of the both-sideism, the horseshoe, maybe we might be... It'd be fair to call it a World Economic Forum horseshoe, I think, in terms of the uh, the uh, the vaccine mandate policy of the World Economic Forum uh, penetration agent Justin Trudeau, and then the so-called reaction to it uh, in terms of these trucker convoys, and so you it, that is something that's also. Still potentially in the mix to watch for in a in, in a domestic American context, in a European context. Now, again, it doesn't mean that there's not a some kind of credible, legitimate reason for people to revolt against that kind of mandate. But the way that it's been totally weaponized very likely begins to look like a prior Kissinger operation in relationship to uh 
the first 9-11 in the Chilean coup. And so this begins to get um, a little bit, you know, Baroque and complex in certain ways in terms of who is Kissinger actually serving when he's for so long been this archetype of the American empire warmonger set and uh, and uh, helping overthrow the government in Chile and the escalation of the proxy war in, in Southeast Asia and, and all of that. And then here he is talking with the, the KGB officer who holds the remnant and who's in many ways helped rebuild the KGB deep state uh, operation of the former Soviet empire and their buddies. So what is going on here? So, all right, I'm going to get back to this and we'll just read a little bit more from this to just get the full uh, fact picture of this Kissinger-Putin background from The Strange Putin-Kissinger Friendship by Marcel Van Herpen. Quote, all right, and this, and, and this is a quote from Putin. Quote, once I met him at the airport, told Putin, we got into the car and went to the residence. On the way, he asked me where I was from and what I was doing. He was an inquisitive old fellow, unquote. Kissinger soon found out that Putin had worked for the KGB. Kissinger then said reassuringly, all decent people got their start in intelligence. I did too. And how, how would he say that, Greg? How? <laughs> all decent people get their start in intelligence. I did. <laughs> Putin continued, quote, then he said something that was completely unexpected and very interesting. Quote, you know, I am very much criticized for the position I took regarding the USSR back then. I believed that the Soviet Union should not abandon Eastern Europe so quickly. We were changing the balance in the world very rapidly, and I thought it could lead to undesirable consequences. And now I'm being blamed for that position. People say, see, the Soviets left and everything's normal. You thought it was impossible but I really did think it was impossible, unquote. Then he thought a while and added, quote, frankly, to, see, to this day, I don't understand why Gorbachev did that, unquote. I had never imagined I might hear something like that from the lips of Henry Kissinger. I told him what I thought, and I will repeat it to you right now. Kissinger was right. We would have avoided a lot of problems if the Soviets had not made such a hasty exit from Eastern Europe, unquote. In that car in St. Petersburg, we, would, we, we could witness the meeting of two minds. On the one hand, the former Secretary of State of Richard Nixon, who, as an admirer of Count Metternich, seemed to prefer the stability of a repressive and totalitarian empire to a rapid decolonization and democratic change. And on the other hand, the former KGB agent, who regretted the loss of empire and would make it his life's vocation to repair, quote, the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century, unquote. The mutual admiration between Putin and Kissinger was still intact 20 years later when, in February 2012, Putin, in an article in the Moskovsky Novosti, wrote, quote, Not long ago, I spoke with H. Kissinger. We meet him regularly, and I share completely this great professional's thesis that in periods of international turbulence, a close and trusting collaboration between Moscow and Washington is required, unquote. 
Putin and Kissinger indeed met regularly at least 15 times. Once Putin was even invited for dinner at Kissinger's home in New York. A, quote, close and trusting collaboration, unquote, seemed in particular to be established between the Kremlin and Kissinger Associates, Kissinger's consulting firm. Uh, Jeremy, this reminds me of the uh, reports, the stories that came out of, uh, it seems to me that two of uh, Putin's favorite foreign um, dignitaries to meet with are um, Henry Kissinger and Benjamin Netanyahu. Because remember those stories that came out around the time of, uh, I believe, between um, in the in the span of the years of time between uh, when Russia really first stepped up its military operations in Syria and believe the fall of 2015 on to the next three or four years like there had been, um, I believe, over a dozen meetings between Netanyahu and Putin in that time period. I don't want to – I forget the exact number, but uh, there was a, a good number of meetings. So it seems like over the years that two of uh, Putin's favorite uh, foreign uh, dignitaries to um, – meet with or Netanyahu and now Kissinger's take that for what it's worth. That's and that's worth a lot, Greg, actually. And uh, it's important um, detail to notice, I think, because the the way that it's framed around Kissinger in terms of the 11-9 operation, in terms of Trump, quote unquote, Russia, obviously is to leave out the Netanyahu, the Israel deep component of the quote unquote Trump Russia operation, but it's also to frame Kissinger as somehow the adult in the foreign policy room rushing in after people saw what was going on um, with this uh, this newly quote unquote elected Trump operation, where he was going to offer he was I, at the best he was just going to take advantage of it and push his thing. But I would say that our noticing that Kissinger it was Kissinger. Uh, at the at the basically the head of the board of of the Center for the National Interest, which really was the sponsor of Trump's big Mayflower Hotel first big foreign policy speech that was crucial to begin to laying out publicly what Manafort was working in the background directly over the years with the with the Putin uh, the Putin people in Ukraine. Uh, th- th- that th- there that was where that was all rolled out publicly for the first time, and so I would say this would then point to the to the very good possibility that Kissinger was actually tasked or was meant to be the the American handler of the Trump operation from the get go, rather than some guy who then just jumped in to take advantage of the thing or to be the come the adult in the room or something like that. Yeah, and uh, Kissinger, um, obviously, right there in the CNI, and the key putting that together being um, the son-in-law Jared Kushner, and of course that uh, you have the Netanyahu, this Netanyahu factor, or excuse me, this um, this Kissinger factor with with Putin, and then you've got Kushner and uh, the childhood friend of the Netanyahu, the Netanyahu family, and all you know, friends of the Kushner family going back to his childhood. So there's a there's a coming together of interest here, I would say, in a pretty um, Pretty noteworthy manner. Oh, yeah. Okay, I'll keep reading th- through a little bit more of this, uh, and then just uh, maybe stop me at some point if, if, uh, if you want to turn to something else, Greg. But uh, this, okay, so far, this is sort of an interesting background here. <laughs> All right. Very much so. Okay, back to this uh, Putin Kissinger friendship article by Marcel uh, Van Herpen. And I, I, I don't know the background of the Cicero Foundation or Van Herpen or any of that. So we're just reading this as a, uh, as a 
document of alleged facts rather than as a uh, sort of uh, we're endorsing the politics behind all of this. But this is very interesting. Okay, quote, a, quote, close and trusting collaboration, unquote, seemed in particular be established between the Kremlin and Kissinger Associates, Kissinger's consulting firm. In July 2007, one year before the Russian invasion of Georgia, Kissinger formed with former Russian Prime Minister Yevgeny Primakov, a Russian-U.S. working group to improve relations. This quote-unquote private initiative gathered for a whole day behind closed doors in Putin's presidential residence near Moscow. There was no doubt who was the initiator. Quote, addressing the panel's first meeting, unquote, one could read in a press release, quote, Putin thanked its participants for their quick response to the idea to set up such a high-level group, first aired during his April meeting with Kissinger and Primakov, unquote. Apart from Kissinger, the American group consisted of former Secretary of State George Shultz, former Treasury Secretary Robert Rubin, former Senator Sam Nunn, Chevron CEO David O'Reilly, and Thomas Graham, head of the Russian Department of Kissinger Associates. In particular, the role of Thomas Graham is interesting. In 2009, he was the author of the report Resurgent Russia and U.S. Purposes. This report was full of good advice for the new Obama administration. Graham started with an attack on Georgian President Mikhail Shakashvili. He criticized Shakashvili's, quote, vitriolic anti-Russian rhetoric, unquote, and mentioned, quote, Georgia's reckless military operation last August as one of the reasons for the new administration to, quote, cease U.S. pressure for the near-term expansion of NATO, unquote. Graham also advised the Obama administration to react positively to Medvedev's proposal for a new European security architecture, adding, quote, if this ultimately leads to the subsuming of NATO into a larger structure over the long term, we should be prepared to accept that. America's essential goal is not securing NATO's long-term future as the central element of our engagement with Europe, no matter how valuable an instrument of U.S. policy in Europe NATO has been in the past, unquote. Thomas Graham seemed not only to be ready to give the Kremlin a veto over NATO decisions, but was even prepared to sacrifice NATO for an illusionary entente with the Kremlin bosses. It came as no surprise then when on the next page, he declared himself to be in favor of quote-unquote Finlandizing Ukraine. The report could have been written by Vladislav Surkov, the Kremlin's chief, chief ideologist, the question therefore arose whether there were also financial interests at stake. On March 31, 2009, Dmitry Sidorov wrote on this in Forbes, quote, We also know that Kissinger's consulting firm is believed to provide advice to the Kremlin, unquote. Kissinger is the ideal lobbyist for the Kremlin because he abstains from asking annoying questions about democracy and human rights. In his book, on China, he writes, quote, Western concepts of human rights and individual liberties may not be directly translatable to a civilization from millennia ordered around different concepts, unquote. This value relativism is highly appreciated by the Kremlin. After the rigged presidential elections of 2012, which led to huge demonstrations in Moscow, Kissinger defended Putin, saying that Putin was a, quote, Russian patriot, unquote. Putin returned the favor. 
On October 29, 2013, Kissinger received the title of Honorary Professor of the Diplomatic Academy of Russia. In his laudatory speech, Putin praised Kissinger for having been over the years, quote, very generous with your time to explain your thinking to me, unquote. Also, the annexation of the Crimea and the Russian aggression in Ukraine did not negatively impact the Kissinger-Putin friendship. In May 2014, Kissinger declared that, quote, Putin was not Stalin, unquote, and instead of defending the sovereignty of Ukraine, he once more spoke out in favor of Ukraine's, quote-unquote, Finlandization. Kissinger once famously said, quote, to prefer stability over justice, unquote. However, it could rather be that his cozying up to the Kremlin pr promotes neither the former nor the latter. Unquote. And that's the end, end of it. Uh, it describes Marcel H. Van Herpen as the author of Putin's Wars, The Rise of Russia's New Imperialism, Second Edition 2015, and Putin's Propaganda Machine, Soft Power and Russian Foreign Policy uh, in 2015 also. Wow, that article. I mean, that's I did not know that about Kissinger getting this honorary professorship and all that and the laudatory statements. I mean, it's a very interesting. And uh, by the way, the Cicero Foundation is described as an independent Dutch non-for-profit organization and think tank whose aim it is to provide a broad global forum to discuss issues that are of central importance to the future of European integration and transatlantic cooperation. Um, its what title says it's an independent pro-EU and pro-Atlantic think tank based out of the Netherlands. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for that. And, uh, all right. I just want to point out too that, and, and if you want to get it back into some, uh, media analysis, I'm, I'm down with that, Greg, but I do want to point out, and maybe we can get in into this to finish up with, uh, is that at this exact same time, in terms of this escalation in Ukraine is when this, this whole justification of, uh, of Putin by Kissinger is is going down and as we'll see manafort's involvement is very very deep uh all the way back to 2004 and and apparently attempting to steal the election for the for the putin politician in ukraine yanukovych and then the opponent uh being uh uh being Poisoned with uh, Agent Orange derivatives <laughs> in the middle of the Orange Revolution. Um, so there, and, and then one last thing that I would point out, and and I don't know if we'll we'll get to this, but when you read Obama's uh, biography, I think it's called A Promised Land. Yeah, A Promised Land. There, there's a part where he describes his first meeting with Putin after becoming president. And he describes the people who are with him. And you can actually find a video uh, of this uh, where they're going out to the, it looks like the deck in, it's probably in Putin's dacha outside of M Moscow. And they're having like a lunch meeting. Um, and it's the first time that, that, that Obama is meeting Putin. And Obama describes it as, quote, I met Vladimir Putin for the first time the following morning when I traveled to his dacha located in a suburb in, outside Moscow. Our Russia experts, Mike McFall and Bill Burns, as well as Jim Jones, joined me for the ride. Having had some past interactions with, Putin's, with Putin, Burns suggested that I keep my initial presentation short. Quote, Putin's sensitive to any perceived slights, unquote, Burns said. 
quote, and in his mind, he's the more senior leader. You might want to open the meeting by asking him his opinion about the state of U.S.-Russian relations and let him get a few things off his chest, unquote. I believe uh, Burns would be Bill Burns, the current CIA director, if I, I think is that's who that's referring to. That is exactly, I believe, who it's referring to. And this Jim Jones, who who he refers to as sort of tertiary to McFall uh, Mc, and um, and uh, and Burns, is actually, if you look in the video, it's Jones. This is General James Jones, who looks to be sitting right next to Obama, actually during this during this meeting. And what's be very interesting about this, and p the people can go look at the some of the the deeper research that someone like John Brisson, and we've read the documents, has done about the background of Jones and Dynology is that in this um, press release that I think I mentioned in our previous episode from 2010 titled Election Watchdog Group Supports Call for Independent Investigation into Ukraine Election Results, Yanukovych campaign team tied to election rigging allegations in the United States. At the bottom of this, and maybe we'll read through this whole thing at some point, it points out that some of the groups that were working here in relationship to uh, Mike Connell's uh, organizations, New Media Communications, and uh, and these uh, Manafort organizations, and Jeff Averbeck's uh, Averbeck's uh, group um, is Dynology, Dynology, and that is J General James Jones's group. And now it came to more recent popularity in relationship to the uh, to the Shadow. What's it called? Shadow uh, Net and uh, um, the Millie Weaver and Patrick Berge, their film. Um, but this was being explored uh, years before that film came out. And so that's, that's a very interesting connection in terms of Paul Manafort working in Ukraine uh, in relationship to Dynology and then James Jones being right there next to Obama at this crucial first meeting uh, with, with Putin. Yeah, that's a great point. And um, as you mentioned, uh, that's something that was not pointed out by, I believe, uh, Patrick Berge and uh, Millie Weaver, et cetera, was the uh, the 2004 connection to all of this stuff. And it's so blatant, too, especially now, like, would be the time for all of this when you have this whole swaths of of the of the political right being open to questions of election integrity. And yet they they're being led intellectually by people like Rudy Giuliani uh, and Michael Flynn and these other sort of what have become obviously some kind of traitors of some sort. And so instead of following them, they could have followed these this open source stuff of people who've actually been tracking really forensically nailed down election fraud that ties the background of Trump's, you know, first main campaign manager, Paul Manafort, to uh, to Rove's IT guru, Mike Connell, who was credibly accused, they were all credibly accused of this involvement in rigging the 2004 elections, we might say, Ohio and the United States and, and, then, in, and then Ukraine. And like I pointed out in our last episode, they were only caught by the people in Ukraine. They have still to this day not been really caught by the American people. And and this link to Dynology uh, in the midst of all of this and James, General James Jones at the Dacha 
lunch table right next to this new President Obama when he first meets Vladimir Putin is 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 actually very stunning, I'd say. Agreed. All right, wh- where should we go uh, next, Greg? Do you want to continue on a little bit deeper in this uh in in terms of some more of the facts around the uh, Manafort involvement in uh, both Ohio and Ukraine or do you want to jump back into media analysis well we could um, we could I think since this is an interconnected topic we could weave it over we could weave it over into the next uh, into the next show so if we want to just continue on this beat we can do that and just uh kind of a conversation that will continue on into our next uh, set of this next recording in this series. So, All right, then if it's okay, then maybe I should just read through this uh, press release from 2010 and then we can read through the, the more recent article from 2018 uh, published by Bob Petrakis and Harvey Wasserman entitled Convicted Trumputin Consigliere Paul Manafort Linked to Ohio Stolen 2004 Election to just basically do the deep political forensics of, of uh, you know, the 11-9-2016 operation, the 2004 Bush-Ohio Rove operation, mm-hmm. and then this Manafort-Putin uh, puppet Ukraine operation. That sounds good. And this is all very important. And we've known how important this is for a while, but like um, I'm putting more and more like um, it's getting the image is getting more and more clear in my head, like how consequential this is as it relates to our current moment and then also linking back you see just how deceptive like this narrative is put out by i'm going to name a name by the likes of aaron mate who what what is manafort like just the what he likes to wear what he likes to wear ostrich suits and he's careless with money or something or like he's like he's just like a you know and that or anything that manafort's done has been like in the service of like you know american empire american imperial interest or whatever but you've got like not only does this link back to 2016 and trump but this links back to the hated and uh despised for all the right reasons of bush administration but all the criminality that took place under there so i mean this is i mean this whole misleading to say the least narrative around manafort whereas on one hand he's able to get book deals he's still roaming free with no um with no doesn't seem like there's any trace of like any type of like looming accountability for Manafort and the crucial roles you talk about here. I mean, obviously going back decades, he had the lobbying firm in the 80s to represent the dictator's lobby, but then more recent than this is directly implicated in um, events that have led to the current moment in Ukraine, as well as the um, not only the rise of Donald Trump, but the re-election of the administration responsible for putting us into this um, putting us into this scenario of endless warfare, which followed the obviously the most fateful event of our generation and the um, deception behind that event, of course, being the events of September 11th. So, I mean, this is very, um, all of this links, this links back to the worst of like the last couple of decades of our um, domestic political situation and uh, global geopolitical situation. I mean, this is, um, this is crucial to hone in on just the um, significance of 2016 current events in Ukraine and the uh, 2004 American re-election of the war criminal Bush administration. Very much so. And remember the, the, you know, Putin and Obama had a rough relationship and I, you know, there was a lot to, to that. And 
And and to me, it looks like Obama came into this relationship with Russia actually taking on some of this advice that was referred to in that Kissinger-Putin write-up about a, an attempt at a at a, a reset with Russia that would be outside potentially of this historical Cold War uh, collapsed NATO architecture uh, of some sort. And and some some people might even say that he was being led down a primrose path at some level. And remember, Putin, as you point out, in terms of this crucial time of the of the turn of the century in the 9-11 operation, and then what was then unleashed uh, in relationship to that, it was it was Putin and George Bush with this very important relationship immediately at that time. And it's described actually, as I pointed out in the last episode in the Oliver Stone interviews with Putin. That uh, that Putin made sure that he directly called Bush uh, for 9/11 to both express sympathy, but also to, uh, to attempt to de-escalate any tension there. As as the United States had these nuclear drills going on at the same time, Global Guardian and Stratcom and all of that, and there is you know still a question of who did 9/11 uh, on the table, and Bush is running around in Air Force One apparently under threat in terms of code words. Angel is next was a message that was being deployed towards the uh, Air Force One at at the time, and then Putin announces that they they're having a new nuclear drill the very day after. And and then remember this whole thing about how George Bush said he saw Putin's soul by looking into his eyes. So there's this very, you know, this kismet of some sort, very strange sort in terms of Putin and George W. Bush, which ultimately then is what who the Manafort, you know, connected people like Mike Connell and the relationship with Rove on the American side. And then and then who Manafort was working for in terms of Yanukovych as a as a, a Putin uh, deep emissary in many ways to to uh, control the politics of Russia, we're all working together. So th- that is something that needs to really be uh, reckoned with. And then final point is that Paul Manafort is about to release his book uh, published by Simon & Schuster later on this year, which is a subsidiary of Paramount Global. <laughs> Uh, formerly Viacom CBS, which we we remember all of the uh, the what was the announcement uh, by the then uh, CBS uh, TV um, CEO at the time, the uh, the nephew of uh, David Ben Gurion, uh, Leslie Moonves, who was later uh, Me Too. Um, Donald Trump might be bad for America, but he's good for CBS. Yep. And so that's who's up now publishing uh, Paul Manafort. And the only question remains is whether Aaron Maté will do a uh, a uh, lick spittle, lick boot kind of interview with him. <laughs> right. And um, also Simon Schuster was going to publish uh, Josh Hawley's book before the pop or the uh, outrage caused them to renege. And then it was uh, Regnery that ended up publishing um, Hawley's book. But I don't think that Manafort doesn't look like Manafort's going to get the same uh, same kind of pushback. I wanted to follow up with that two quick observations to what you uh, you mentioned there. It's interesting. Uh, Obama has these frosty relationships with the uh, same people who would be Trump's biggest uh, foreign um you know, backers, buddies, or whatever. That being uh, Netanyahu and Putin, just the the contrast, the frostiness, and the relationships with uh, whatever dynamic Trump had with uh, Putin, and the obvious like um, 
long time uh, relationship with the Netanyahu going back to the 1980s and on. So I, it's interesting you contrast like the frostiness of Obama to like the type of dynamic that uh, Trump or even a Bush had with uh, with Putin. And of course, um, the aspects of like the Netanyahu gang in Israel, not Netanyahu directly because he wasn't prime minister, but elements within that same that same network. And the other thing I wanted to point out was what you mentioned there with like the uh, you know, this idea not of maybe not even of like this is even going outside of like the symbolic reset button and all this, but like an actual maybe type of like some kind of quote unquote reset that would go outside of like the traditional like Cold War strategy of tension dynamics. That sounds to me like it's very interesting. Like this reminds me of uh, what you mentioned of like Obama's closeness with uh, Ben Rhodes and uh, Ben Rhodes playing a primary role in trying to maybe um, bring this detente with Cuba that would go outside of like the long term cold war dynamics of this hostility with cuba so it seems that there was uh, there were aspects in there and it's not to defend like ultimately what became of the obama administration of course or the areas where the obama administration uh, failed to say the least but it does show there were there were openings for some things to go differently from administration that um ultimately for whatever reason in some ways maybe in terms of cuba maybe there was a there was a breakthrough that was turned around under trump completely but that um there was a chance for some things to play out differently in terms of like our foreign policy in a pretty uh, significant manner. Maybe not quite on the level of say like a Kennedy foreign policy that looked like, but there were there were movements for some for some changes, and maybe this was another one of those. That's a very good point, and I, and because of that, I do think we at some point in this series we should delve a little bit more deeply into where the, the as you identified this Ben Rhodes Obama relationship might have been heading in certain ways in terms of, uh, especially in terms of a, a different dynamic than what became uh, of, the, of the, the, the Trump administration. Because what you see is that there's certain, there was a lot of pushback in relationship to some of these resets, including not only the reset with Russia, but also uh, reset with the Middle East and, Russia, and reset with the Muslim world. And remember this, the apology tour that was early on uh, deeply criticized by Fox, the whole Fox News contingent in relationship to Obama pushing through to actually make this speech, which was a follow up to a speech that he uh, made in terms of uh, the sort of. We tor- we tortured some folks. Uh, speech uh, that that was sort of that was the gist of that, um, where Obama made a little bit of apologizing for the United States overstepping its post nine eleven reaction in terms of uh, in terms of human rights and torture and and civil rights uh, in in certain ways at home. And he apparently and he and Ben Rhodes got a a bunch of pushback from within the U.S. national security establishment about even talking about torture and uh, even coming close to apologizing it, but they got even more pushback in relationship to his follow-up speech, which was then done in Cairo uh, in Egypt, where it was called the Muslim speech, where he then acknowledged that the United States government had overthrown the government of Iran. And that was very much pushback against, and apparently a key player in all this was his uh, chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel who not only played the apparent role of the key guy keeping Obama focused on the kill list and making sure that the kill list was being followed through on, but also Obama says that that Rahm Emanuel tried to stand him down 
from making the Muslim speech. Uh, and uh, and so that's a, a an interesting uh, piece of it, too. And so th- there's some in other interesting pieces maybe in this Obama book that might uh, – give us a little bit more insight uh, into what was going on in relationship to uh, Ukraine and Putin and Russia and all that, too. Indeed. All right. Let's just um, first let's read through this 2010 article slash press release titled Election Watchdog Group Supports Call for Independent Investigation into Ukraine Election Results. Yanukovych campaign team tied to election rigging allegations in the United States. News provided by VelvetRevolution.us. And I don't know what that is exactly. February 16th, 2010. And just the facts of this matter. Think about why all the people who have maybe focused on, on, um, on Shadow, ShadowNet or ShadowGate, I can't remember the name of it, and this whole milieu have not delved deeply into this question of Mike Connell and Ukraine and Mike Connell then in terms of, uh, of 2004 Ohio and this Manafort network, which is so crucial to understanding all of what's going on. All right. Quote, Ukrainian presidential candidate and prime minister Yulia Tymoshenko last week alleged that over 1 million votes were stolen by opposition candidate Viktor Yanukovych in the February 7th presidential runoff election. That that's, uh, then quotes a Japan Today, Tymoshenko calls Ukraine vote rigged. She has filed over 60 complaints with the Central Election Commission and has called the irregularities, quote, shocking, unquote. Unquote. One p- quick point here is remember that the the that it was Timoshenko then who was then I believe then locked up by uh, by Yanukovych I think in in terms of a political corruption scandal and it, um oh I was also going to say Timoshenko I believe was uh, Timoshenko may have been the primary Ukrainian figure that was implicated in those uh, articles that were put out. Uh, Via Breitbart, I believe, uh, Ben Shapiro yes. about the, uh, the the Nazis that were um, or the the Nazi types that like the Clinton State Department was working with in terms and not uh, in Ukraine. So I believe that was uh, Timoshenko was at the center of uh, that as well. That's a great point, because that then is w- what I was going to bring up is that 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 it's this this uh, the PR assault around Timoshenko was actually the origins for Locker Up. For, that was then deployed in an American context, specifically in relationship to these kinds of weaponized um, articles that, w- that were then um, washed through people like Ben Shapiro and Breitbart. And now with the background of that is it looks like it actually went through the Israeli uh, Ministry of Strategic Affairs, which I believe actually got shut down last year, 2021, uh, w- w- who at the head of it then was um what's his name oh the uh do you know what i'm talking about greg um avigdor um, lieberman avigdor lieberman oh that, yes yes yeah, yes that, yeah go ahead there was the allegation was that the this had been the uh the attack on that that hillary clinton was anti-semitically um, associated in relationship to this Timoshenko 
the Ukrainian Nazi. You think about how much this sort of the Nazi thing, because and that's of course it's very real. There is the Azov Battalion. They there there's this strong background in terms of the especially Western Ukraine in relationship to actual Nazis and in relationship to World War II and all of that. There still is this Azov Battalion, but the way of then sort of the how it's still in much of the alternative media that's that's sort of running some kind of cover for Putin's invasion here. They it's just Nazi, 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 Ukrainians, Nazi. And it's either that and but then because they have this uh, Jewish president, then it's then for other elements who are more like Marjorie Taylor Greene types. It's sort of like he's a George Soros puppet. But those are sort of the two pillars here. And th that was already being run in relationship to Timoshenko and Hillary Clinton as this sort of accusation of anti-Semitism via Paul Manafort's, uh, uh, you know, PR-driven attack. And remember, there's this whole background of someone like uh, Arthur Finkelstein, who's at the epicenter of, of, of all of this, too. And um, Lieberman, if we um, our suspicions in terms of like Lieberman's long-term um, affiliations are correct, then it would make sense that uh, this stuff was passed through him as well. Yep. So both of those things that the actual like the uh, the information attack in relationship to washing this in via the Israeli Ministry of Strategic Affairs and Avigdor Lieberman, who historically has been no notoriously known as uh, a credibly accused even asset of Russian intelligence, but at, on the overt case, very close to the Kremlin uh, over the years, and then on into the. Uh, Bright, the Breitbart created at the table with uh, with Netanyahu at that point, Ben Shapiro, um, then washing it for an American audience, combined with then that this this the same guy Manafort running his dirty operations in uh, in in a very uh, Finkelsteinian kind of way in in uh, Ukraine in terms of lock her up in relationship to Timoshenko, then it, they just basically remixed it for, for Hillary Clinton. And it's Mike Flynn on stage sort of leading the chant and or acknowledging being happy about the chant about lock her up, lock her up, lock her up. And then full circle, Michael Flynn, um, after being, after serving as the <laughs> Michael Flynn, um, heads over to meets with the uh, Russian Shi'ar youth. I mean, it's just full, it kind of, it, it seems full circle to me. Yeah. All right. Back to this uh, release. Quote, in 2004, Mr. Yanukovych's campaign was caught, ri caught rigging the election after members of his election team were recorded discussing how to destroy evidence that showed tampering with the tabula tabulation results. That revelation led to massive protests in the street, the Orange Revolution and a new vote, which resulted in the election of Viktor Yushchenko. Uh, after he was uh, poisoned by uh, by uh, Agent Orange derivative, which you don't, <laughs> you don't for sort of no one brings that into it. Okay, quote the backstory regarding the 2004 election theft was provided in public testimony last year by CIA agent Steven Stigall, who confirmed that Viktor Yanukovych stole that October 2004 election by secretly placing a quote man in the middle computer in the central tabulation facility and flipping the results by 14% according to other sources. 
This rigging was suspected because the exit polls favored Viktor Yushchenko by 11%. However, it was only proven by taped phone calls between Yanukovych's campaign managers discussing the rigging and the attempted cover-up. And then this, that, that, uh, that has a link there. A lot of these links actually are sort of dead. Some of them are dead or they're web archives. And so just think about how non-notorious this analysis and this background is in, con in contrary to the question of the accusations of Trump, who just yesterday at CPAC uh, was uh, still calling it the rigged, the rigged election against me, the stolen election. This would have never have happened if they didn't rig the election against me. And thinking about that this was basically proven out being done by his guy Manafort over there in Ukraine. The other side of this that directly relates to this media analysis that we were talking about before is that they talk about that this was a democratically elected government that was then, i.e. Yanukovych's government, that was then overthrown. They're talking about the 2010 one. Now, this is saying that 2010 was very, look, very similar to 2004 when they got caught and then it got reversed by re redoing the election. But then 2010, there's these accusations of the same kind of thing happening. And it's that election that these people who run cover, who basically be Putin shills ultimately say that this was a that the, uh, you know, the Maidan Square and that whole revolution that then overthrew you, um, uh, Yanukovych was of a, quote, democratically elected government without ever admitting or acknowledging this entire background here of that this were these were very the first one proven out 2004 to be a stolen election and 2010 very likely just a replica without the sort of the poisoning uh, of the candidate is basically what it looked they just repeated the whole thing so that is just damning uh, on all accounts and the other thing is that that as as um Sherry Jacobus has finally really come out directly uh, to say that it looks like Rove very likely stole uh, the the uh, 2016 election or the same kind of forces were, that, that Rove had talked about, how you had to have it within a certain range in order to steal it. This was exaggerated, it looks like, at a massive level in, U in Ukraine. Um, and uh, so there's actually a lot to be learned structurally, I think, for people who are seriously interested in the question of election fraud, election integrity, how all of this actually goes down, how this was very likely done in an American context in 2016. And there was very likely an attempt at it in 2020, but not by the they tried to rig the elections against me, but by his people, potentially. That was the and this is, of course, why they were so upset about the question of the paper ballots uh, via mail. That's a paper trail that they could not, they had a much harder time being able to rig that kind of thing. And this whole thing is based on, as it points out, man-in-the-middle attacks, central tabulation facilities uh, in relationship to, uh, you know, to electric voting, electronic voting, really. And, uh, and so this is uh, crucial to look at, I think. All right, back to this release, unless you have something to, uh, you want to add. Uh, no, I'm just, no, um, no, go ahead. Okay, quote, Yanukovych's campaign team in 2004 and 2010 included Rick Davis and Paul Manafort, the owners of a Washington, D.C. lobbying PR firm called 3EDC. 
And it links to a, a Huffington Post article from 2008 titled New Questions Over McCain something. 3EDC has bragged on its website that it had five, quote, strategic partners, unquote. And, and this is something that, that I believe that um, uh, Patrick Berge does get in, got into in his, uh, in his own independent investigations even before they uh, did the film is these five strategic partners. Okay, quote, new media communications run by CEO Mike Connell, who has been accused of rigging GOP elections. Integrated Web Strategy, another Connell-affiliated company that works with Chamber of Commerce Institute of Legal Reform, which has been found by courts to have engaged in illegal election manipulations. Campaign Solutions, run by Mike Connell's partner, Becky Donatelli, Airnet Group, parent company of Smart Tech Corporation, owned by Jeff Averbeck, which was employed by Mike Connell in the controversial diversion of the state of Ohio's official vote prior to certification of a contested majority favoring George Bush over Democratic opponent John Kerry, and Dynology Corp., which has a heavy military client list, quote, a majority of our staff hold security clearances that allow access to secret and top-secret classified government information, unquote. Rick Davis, Paul Manafort, and 3EDC were, manager, were managers of Yanukovych's 2004 election campaign and were key advisors in Yanukovych's 2010 election. They maintained a strategic partnership with both Mike Connell and Jeff Averbeck, both of whom have been accused of rigging Bush's elections. Mr. Mr. Connell was killed in a very suspicious December 2008 airplane crash after he was called to testify about the vote rigging allegations. According to an article in the February 2010 issue of Maxim magazine, Mr. Connell rigged the 2004 election for George Bush by creating a man in the middle attack to change the results of the Ohio election results. And it links to the uh, Maxim article, Mysterious Death of Bush's Cyber Guru. That attack was done through the GOP computers run by smart tech. For all these reasons, Velvet Revolution, a nonpartisan election watchdog group, calls for an independent investigation and audit of the Ukrainian election, especially the tabulation of votes. And remember, one, one person who's left out of this uh, is also who I believe was working directly with Manafort at the time ended up being a key operative in the Bernie Sanders campaign, Tad Devine, which then brings into question all of these scenarios in relationship to what happened with Bernie Sanders' campaign or what was the function of it and all of these uh, scenarios, I think, must then be asked additionally. <laughs> uh, great points. And um, I guess as we, uh, I guess we're going to begin to wrap up here and we will, um, we'll delve more into this and into the, uh, some of the specifics of the uh, media propaganda as we've been uh, talking about here um, next time as this um, as this background here with uh, Manafort and Ukraine and uh, and these elections and is directly interconnected, I think, with the um, narrative that we're getting as a result of uh, the, the interconnecting of 2004 Ukraine and the U.S. election with Bush. 2016 Trump um, and all the intrigue surrounding uh, Russia and other foreign countries, and then the um, the current events all are all interrelated to the 
media narratives that are being put out there that are very that I think are playing right into just a, this reaction being a continuity to the um, the agenda that was in place with the Trump administration, which was basically going to be to just uh, be a boon to Russia geopolitically, and I and we'll get into how like some of these actors in the Republican Party and in the media and governmental sphere are i think aiding this along in their own ways in terms of like the narratives that are being pushed so we'll get into that along with some analysis of the um the more quote-unquote alternative media side of things next time and uh we'll just continue on this um very this very interconnected uh theme here and uh there might be some more uh reading that we'll bring into the next uh next part of this recording but um i guess we're about ready to wrap up unless you want to close with anything yeah, that that sounds good, Greg, and we'll we'll continue onwards uh, in our future episodes in this in this U- deep dive background Ukraine series. Um, but I just want to point out that this is another area, similarly to where false flags, the actual historical background of false flags, are represent a Achilles heel for both the Russian side and the American side in terms of no go zones of some sort. That something like election fraud in terms of this and how it connects directly Ukraine and uh, American elections, especially especially 2004 Ohio and and 2016, actually uh, a bunch of uh, largely Midwest states uh, that look to have the parameters for the potential for election fraud to have been done, that this is another deep core political issue that is a, a very likely an Achilles heel, uh, if not just a no-go zone for, quote-unquote, both sides of this, of this uh, crisis in terms of if you talk about Russia and the United States. But again, Ukraine is the, what actually happened in Ukraine in relationship to the 21st century and how all this went down and how then a, quote-unquote, democratically elected government of this uh, this guy that Manafort was working for on behalf apparently of the sort of Putin uh, you know deep political uh, interests was uh, was very likely rigged into place uh, and so then going back to what Kissinger and where Kissinger aligned with Putin and apparently Kissinger aligns with China is this idea of uh, of a relativism in relationship to sort of these convenient uh, things like human rights and democracy and, and such. And, uh, and so I think that this makes a lot of sense to, to really clarify the forensics of election fraud and how it connects directly the background of this Ukraine political crisis with the American side of the crisis. Yeah, and that fits right in with what we have identified with, like this mutual Russian-Israeli uh, disdain for, like these, uh, you know, these international institutions and rule, international rule of law, human rights, and all this. And you could throw China in there as well. So I guess the the relativism and lack of care about things like that from, uh, like Henry Kissinger, fits right into this um, trend that we've picked up on in terms of uh, this mutual disdain that very much played out in terms of like a a Trump administration had a desire to try and um, undermine that as much as possible for all of its flaws, like the international, like the rule of law, as we know it in terms of like the organization's watchdogs over things related to human rights, et cetera. All right. 
Thank you, Greg. Thank you. And we'll uh, be back. Uh, we'll be back very, very soon to uh, follow up on this. All right. Thank you, everybody. Till next time. Antidote. We are out. Thank you.